1: Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
0: Hello, welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today's
2: episode is a little bit different than normal. I've got a co-host with me today, Riding Shotgun, Jared Arnold. Jared is our COO and has expertise in today's subject matter of 1031 Transactions. So I'm glad that he could join me. Jared, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Brian. And also this morning, we've got Ricky Novak. Ricky is the co-founder of the Strategic Group. He has spent his career working at the intersection of real estate, tax, and private equity, he works directly with high net worth investors and family offices, and he is the trusted advisor to these clients. His expertise focuses on real estate, private equity, tax-deferred 1031 exchanges, Delaware statutory trust, DSTs, tax-deferred opportunities on funds, and numerous federal and state-sponsored tax mitigation strategies. Ricky, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So- A lot of the news recently, we're recording this in September of 2022 about, you know, potential tax changes. 1031 is always kind of on a chopping block. It seems like every year when the legislature goes about thinking through tax changes, but bigger picture, you know, our investors are all taxable entities, right? High net worth individuals, family offices, or RIAs, multifamily offices that represent those clients as opposed to institutional investors, which are non-taxable entities many times. Ricky, could you maybe just give a little bit of, of background on you professionally? And that helps inform kind of the the investment thesis and the strategies you work with, because a lot of folks, the way they think about it, real estate investing is from a
0: after-tax, net-of-fees perspective. Yeah, no, happy to do it. You know, it's kind of an interesting uh, route to get to the world that I live in today. You know as a law school student uh, heading out uh, from school, uh, never went to work for a law firm, actually worked for a big accounting firms, so Arthur Anderson and Deloitte, and so focused on a lot of very kind of high level tax related strategies, you know most of which impacted high net worth individuals and of family offices, and many that were specific to real estate. So it's something I've looked at for for my entire career. And, you know, the the challenge that we all face is that the government continues to do away with a lot of these strategies. It's interesting to see, you know, the world we live in today, it's the dichotomy of what programs exist that maybe have some social good to them, but let's weigh that against, you know, kind of, wealthy families getting big tax breaks. And, And so we're seeing a lot more scrutiny on what are these programs, how do they work, Who's getting the best at, and is there a true social good, or can we identify a societal positive that is coming out of these programs, and is the government getting banged for its buck? So you're right. Continually, we're seeing attacks on these programs, and so every year, 1031 is one of those areas where if there's tax law change being discussed, 1031 tends to at least be uh, at minimal whispered in those conversations. And-
2: Bear with me, I'm also a a recovering attorney like you, and I got a C in basic federal income tax. So that's why I have Jared on this episode with me, because it's a pretty ugly scene from that perspective. But what I often say to people is, you know, don't fight the Fed is a common strategy for investments. But when you're talking about after tax returns, don't fight the IRS is also a big one, right? And that IRS code is a set of incentives and disincentives to encourage or discourage certain behavior. So from that lens, could you maybe talk through kind of the the basics of 1031 and from an investment thesis perspective and strategy perspective, why deferring taxes is such a powerful tool for individuals and families?
0: Sure. You know, when you look at it, the good news is while there are plenty of strategies out there that have, you know, higher degrees of risk, 1031 happens to be a strategy that really has minimal risk. It's been around in the code for quite some time. You know, the the code and the Treasury regs are are very detailed on this matter, and there's a good bit of case law out there on 1031 related issues. So, as a strategy, when taxpayers look at 1031, it's not something where they're stepping out on the ledge and being aggressive in their tax planning. Now, within 1031 based on the facts and circumstances of their individual situation, there can always be less or more risk depending on the facts and circumstances. So even though the strategy itself is not a strategy that is viewed as aggressive, certainly you could have fact patterns that could make it more aggressive. So those are things you need to think about. And we always tell our clients, you know, we're as a qualified intermediary, we're there to help facilitate their 1031 exchange, but we're there to be a kind of a a sounding board, if you will, that can give guidance to their CPA, their tax attorney, their wealth advisor, so they can make informed decisions. The rules on 1031, pretty straightforward. If you own a property, meaning real property, if you own a property that has been either held as an investment or used in a trade or business, you have the ability to sell that asset and execute an exchange into one or more replacement assets. And if you do everything properly, you're deferring your tax liability. Now, there are a lot of rules that are surround, surrounding this transaction, right? You have to involve a firm that, like ours, is a qualified intermediary that will help facilitate that with your closing attorney or title company that's handling the closing. From the day of closing, you've got 45 days to identify what you've targeted to purchase. And you can, the rule of thumb is up to three properties of any value. And then you have a total of 180 days meaning the 180 is inclusive of that 45-day ID window in which to actually close on these properties, you know, one or more of those properties you identified. So again, if you do everything properly, you're deferring your tax liability. And the reason that is a powerful tool is you're taking dollars that would have gone to pay federal and state taxes, right? If you're in a state that has a state income tax, you're deferring paying the those tax dollars and you're taking those dollars and rolling them into a new investment, and therefore, you know, arguably, you're investing more dollars, and those dollars have a greater ability to grow over time. So, you know, it's as easy as saying, you know, would you rather have seventy five dollars to go invest in real estate, or would you rather have a hundred dollars? What would your preference be? And for most people, they'd rather have more capital. So, a ten thirty one is a great way to accomplish this, and it can also be a long term planning strategy. Many of our clients that the joke I have with my clients is, you know, the best way to win at the 1031 game it is to die and leave the property to your heirs. Because at the time you pass, your heirs receive that asset at a stepped up basis. So you could have millions of dollars of deferred taxes baked into your properties. But once you pass and your heirs receive that property, they get a step up in basis to whatever the market value is at that time. If they sell it at that market value, they pay no income tax. Now, you still have inheritance taxes and things of that nature you have to pay attention to. But as far as the capital gains tax that you've deferred over time and your depreciation recaps or that you've deferred over time, you don't have to pay that. Yes, yeah, interesting. Jerry and I were just in New Orleans meeting with an investor that has utilized
2: the strategy of 1031 out of assets they've owned for a long Period of time into some of our opportunities, and we commented about QIs and and how they work. Jared, do you want to maybe talk through kind of the the players who were involved in this and why getting the right QI matters? Yeah, certainly.
3: You know, there's a lot of QIs out there. You know, some go about it the right way, some maybe uh, cut some corners, And, and we've had experience with with multiple different QIs over the last couple of years, and. It makes a, a big difference. Um, you want someone who's going to have, um, you know, their ducks in a row is looking out for your best interest and it's going to, you know, kind of show you the right way to go about things.
0: Yeah, I would say be, be wary of a QI to cut corners because if they're willing to do it for you, it means they're probably doing it for others. And in the event that that QI gets audited by the IRS, there is actually precedent where the IRS has come in and said, look. You're not acting as this independent third party intermediary. You're kind of just doing whatever your clients want. We're going to disallow all of the 1031 exchanges you've been involved in. So, you know, pick your QI carefully because the one that's just going to do whatever you want might be the one that ultimately like, gets you in some serious hot water down the road. So it, it definitely be careful with that. So yeah. let's, let's take that the next step
2: and talk about kind of. If you are an investor, if you are an owner of real assets, you're interested in doing a 1031 transaction, and I want to ask this for both of you. So Ricky, from your perspective, what questions should a property owner ask a qualified intermediary? And what are red flags? And then Jerry, from your perspective, if you could follow on to Ricky's comments, when we're talking to QI's as a sponsor, what do you like to see? What are questions that you ask? What do you think are best practices? We'll start with Ricky and then move on to Jared.
0: Sure. So I think there's a couple of things to focus on. One, you know, figure out how sophisticated your QI is. You know, there, there are some of these QIs are, are just big banks, big title companies. Others are very small, mom and pop. You want a QI that is knowledgeable and that can truly give you information and help you make decisions. You know, the IRS says that the QI can't be your advisor, but the fallacy of that comment is the QI is generally, or at least should be the most knowledgeable party on 1031 exchanges when they're at the table. So make sure the person knows what the heck they're talking about and really is an expert in this area of very technical tax law. The other thing is, you know, make sure they've got the right insurance, that they've got the right bonding in place, you know, things like Fidelity crime bonds. Back in you know, the the recession we all went through in 2008, kind of through 2010, there were a lot of intermediaries that went bankrupt because they were just doing very inappropriate things with client money. Ask for your QI, where are my funds being held? What is going on with my funds? While the taxpayer cannot have any direct or indirect control over the money, you kind of want a QI that is willing to tie their own hands Meaning that in the legal documents you sign with your intermediary, it is clear as to what they are or are not able to do with your money while they hold it. So those are definitely some things to talk about. The other is, you know, do you have a dedicated person at the QI or do you just call into a call desk and it's a bunch of random people where someone's got to look up your file, figure out who you are, figure out what's going on with your exchange? Or do you have a dedicated exchange advisor? that is working with from start to finish. Those are all things that I would ask.
3: Yeah. And to piggyback off that, Brian, you know, it's one of my pet peeves against all third-party providers is having multiple people that you're conversing with. So I think that's a a big one. Uh, But from my perspective, you know, I'm not the one making the, or we are not the one making the choice of which QI to go with. But from that regard, you know, you can certainly tell, which ones are knowledgeable and which ones have a certain level of sophistication when just kind of, you know, talking with these QIs. And I think that's important because, you know, whereas we don't say, Hey, use this QI or anything of that nature. We certainly have investors come to us that have heard about 1031 exchanges, but they don't know where to start. And so that's, you know, the ones that we like to work with, the ones that show that level of sophistication and knowledge, that's the direction that we're
2: going to kind of push those investors to. So along those lines, Ricky, you reeled off a a number of participants in these transactions. If you're at the kitchen table and you're an owner thinking about pursuing a 1031, what is the timeline You know, in terms of how they should think about pre-sale and then who are the other folks that should be around the kitchen table for them as their advisors, as their third parties, the vendors? There's a lot of people involved. And so what does that
0: process look like best practice-wise in your opinion? Yeah, I think it's a great question. You know, it's really important to make sure that everyone who is on your team that might need to know what you are thinking about doing is involved in conversations, right? What I generally find is, you know, the CPA is always the most important person generally to be part of the conversation. And the CPA may say, hey, we have a whole bunch of losses this year we don't need to do a 1031 exchange. Just, you know, let's, let's sell this property and use the losses to offset. So that certainly could be something you would hear them say, or they may have additional information or knowledge that would impact, you know, what exactly you may do in your 1031, right? They may say, you know, we should do a partial exchange based on some other issues that we're dealing with. So CPA always should be at the table. Other parties that may need to be involved in the conversation to some degree, If you work with a third party tax attorney or real estate attorney, you know, they may want to be involved. If you're working with real estate professionals, like a real estate broker, they may need to be involved. A wealth advisor. These are all people that probably should have working knowledge of what it is you're contemplating doing. And then of course, you know, as far as, you know, the timing on this, you know, we always tell our clients, get us as the QI, get us involved early. Because there are many different planning strategies that can be implemented on a 1031. But if you wait until three days before closing, you may find that there were steps that could have been taken that could have mitigated some risks that exist in your back pattern that now you have no option, but to just live with the fact pattern as it is. So earlier is always better because it allows people to be proactive, not reactive. Yeah. And to piggyback off that for a second, you know, I I can speak to this from
3: the CPA. World and then also from, from our world, I spent, you know, five years in public accounting. And whereas we didn't see 1031 in, in that time period, maybe as much as what we're seeing right now, there were certainly a lot of situations where the CPA didn't even know about a 1031 transaction until it had already happened or until it didn't happen. So having that CPA involved, if you're even thinking about, you know, selling a piece of real estate, it's just you know get all parties involved, have that conversation early, make sure you understand the implications of what could or could not happen because it's you know real life complications, and it can certainly have an impact on you know what you do going forward. And and then from the Excelsior standpoint of of getting us involved early on, it just helps us to to you know have an idea of what you're trying to solve for if you've already had that, that conversation with your CPA and with your tax attorney with your QI, we can come in and just kind of guide you based on where you know what
2: goal you want to accomplish and really assist in that manner so you know we've seen a huge uptick in interest from our investor base on pursuing these 1031 transactions over the last i'd say 12 18 months jared let's, let's start with you i mean why do you think there has been such an increase and then Rick, I'd love for you to kind of follow on to his thoughts and commentary if you have more additional thoughts.
3: Yeah, I mean, my my thought on it is, you know, whereas it's always kind of on the chopping block, I, I think with the new administration coming in, it was a little bit, you know, more of, of an item that was talked about and continues to be talked about. The former administration, you know, made his money in real estate. And I, th- I think there was a little bit of, you know, An attempt to, to go after that to some degree. And so with, with that being said, I I think, you know, anyone that was thinking about potentially selling a piece of property within the next couple of years, maybe they were, they were trying to speed that up. From our perspective, typically with 1031 investments, at least in my experience, you're talking about a single tenant, triple net, uh, uh, opportunity. Those got very competitive. And so people were looking for other sources and, and they, you know, found us and, and that, regard. And there's just, there's not too many sponsors that when I go through the headaches from our perspective of making sure that these transactions happen, there's a lot of risk involved, you know, from, from our perspective of losing a 1031 when they have multiple different properties identified or, you know, there's timing perspectives. There's a whole host of, of issues that, that could arise. So, you know, there's just not too many of us out there that are, are willing to take on that
0: risk. Yeah, I would certainly echo the sentiment of, you know, with the change in administration, you know, while it was interesting that in 2018, you know, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act went into into place and and one of the items that was in that act was eliminating 1031s on personal property, right? A lot of people will know that there was a higher volume of 1031 done on personal property, predominantly rental car fleets, and trucking fleets. There was more 1031 in that space than actually in, in real estate. And so the prior administration actually agreed to eliminate it on personal property, leaving real property. And then when the new administration came in, we saw you know, the Biden administration do something that the Obama administration had done. And that was to want to either eliminate it 1031 or materially impact who and how it can be used on real estate. So I think we saw an uptick in volume based on that. The other thing that I really think we saw is coming out of the pandemic, I think people took a good hard look at where their money was invested and how it was impacted during the pandemic. So an example is we have seen a massive flight out of, you know, large urban core. So think, you know, uh, New York, think San Francisco, think Chicago. We've seen a good bit of people say, you know what? I'm going to sell my commercial investment in New York. I'm going to go buy a property out in the Hamptons or I'm going to go buy a property, you know, down on the coast of Florida. Because of, you know, and, and, and I'll put it in a rental program so it qualifies. But I saw some things that concerned me when the world shut down during the pandemic. And now people are being a little reactionary to that. The flight into, you know, beach, mountain and like lake, properties has been material. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And something that I hadn't really thought of, Ricky, is you know, we focus
3: on, on the Southeast and Texas. So Tennessee, Texas, border, kind of our main, main targets. And you know, that could be a, a good reason, Brian, of, of you know, why we've seen the uptick is that we are focused on those geographical areas and, and something that I really hadn't thought about yet.
0: Yeah. If the state stayed open for business, chances are the commercial real estate was faring much better than states that shut down And we have seen a flight of capital based on, you know, kind of pandemic behavior. So great, great points.
1: Want to learn more about investing in alternatives, get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com.
2: So deferring taxes, a good thing. Ricky, I'd love to maybe have you dig a little bit deeper. You kind of put out a fact pattern that works really well, right? In terms of not to be morbid, but a best case scenario is the super low basis asset that you've been able to defer taxes on for a long time. You pass away, heirs inherit, you get that stepped up basis. Could you maybe, for people that aren't CPAs or tax attorneys, kind of talk through what that looks like and where you've seen these 1031 transactions really do well and be successful for multi-generational
0: families? Yeah, I'll give you an example of something that I've seen happen quite often. And that is, you know, there are a lot of families that have bought, you know, large land assets, right? Hunting plantations, uh, ranches, things of that nature. And the patriarch and matriarch have owned that property for a long period of time, very low basis, very high value currently. However, when you look at the next generation of kids, no one is really super excited about, you know, stepping into owning the 5,000 acre hunting plantation in Louisiana. And so now all of a sudden, you know, the family's stuck with this challenge of matriarch and patriarch are getting up there in age. When they pass, the kids are going to left fighting over, you know, selling the property and dealing with that. So an interesting planning strategy is, you know, let's go ahead, let's take this plantation, right? Family's not using it as much as they used to use it. Let's sell it. Let's do a 1031 exchange into a portfolio of income-producing commercial assets. And let's focus, let's say the property that you sell in Louisiana is worth $15 million. The family has three kids that will be the heirs when Major and patriarch pass away. So what the family does is they look to do an exchange. They sell the Louisiana hunting plantation. They go out, they make three five million dollar investments. They invest five million into an office building in Kansas City. They invest five million into an apartment complex in Nashville. They invest five million into a retail shopping center in the suburbs of Atlanta. And now Matriarch and Patriarch have taken all that gain that is in that property, moved it over into these three investments. And are able to enjoy the benefit of the income off of those investments. But when matriarch and patriarch pass away, now all of a sudden these investments pass along to the kids. The kids get a step up in basis, right? So now when you look at it, you know, if the five million investment is worth seven million, if the kids sell that asset at seven million dollars, they're not paying any tax because they received that step up in basis. And now the kids may say, you know what, with my seven million, I'm going to go buy that beach house that I've always wanted in Naples. You know, I'm going to buy a house in Naples. That's what I wanted. And another kid may say, you know what? I'm going to take the $7 and, you know, I don't like the commercial asset I'm in. I want to be in something different. So I'll exchange into another asset. Maybe the third kid says, you know what? I'm just going to cash out, you know, sell it. Don't have to pay any tax. And I'll just go take the money and put it in the stock market, right? So, So there are strategies like that that can be implemented that helps families deal with you know challenging situations as you start to see you know, the, the the baby boomer generation start to hit that age where people are really starting to think about what's going to happen with these assets when I pass on. Yeah. I mean, my commentary on why I've
2: seen a huge uptick, I think everything that you all said is correct. And this huge demographic shift of the baby boomers aging out, and especially if they've owed assets during the Great Recession, during COVID, if we do enter into another recessionary period, a lot of them just don't want to stick around. They've seen the movie before, and they're looking to maybe go from active to passive, like Ricky pointed out, and working with different sponsors or funds, et cetera. So I think that's kind of part of this whole story. Jared, from your perspective, when we get approached by an investor who has a 1031 transaction, what are similarities or characteristics that you've seen where it's gone really well in in terms of How they've come to the table, how they've approached us, how they've been organized. What would you say is kind of best practice where you as part of the sponsorship group feel really comfortable working with that 1031 investor?
3: Yeah, absolutely. And this kind of goes back to our conversation earlier of, you know, having everyone involved early on where I've seen it gone really go really well is when someone comes to us, they're thinking about selling a property. They haven't sold it yet. They know what they want to solve for. They know what type of. A property they're looking for, and so they come to us looking, essentially, asking us to help them solve for that that problem. Where I've seen it go poorly is is when you know you have 45 days to identify a property, and they're on day 37. You know, luckily from from our perspective, we've been able to solve those issues for the the ones that have kind of come to the table with that with that set of problems. But that's the biggest thing from my perspective is. If, if you come to me and say, hey, I'm thinking about selling this property, I should go under a PSA in the next two weeks. I feel a lot more comfortable than when someone says, hey, I have four days to, to identify a property. Can you help me out?
2: So Ricky, what, what questions should folks entering into a 1031 transaction
0: ask that they don't ask? You know, usually the the questions we see people overlook are making sure they clearly understand the math of the transaction. Common misconception we get, and this goes back to the, you know, have your advisors talk with one another. You know, even some of the best CPAs, they only see 1031 exchanges once or twice a year, right? They're not experts in it. So we get these people that'll call us and say, look, you know, I've got a property, I'm selling it for $3 million dollars. My basis is two million, so I'm going to go buy a property for a million dollars, and then I'll be able to do my exchange. And my response is, if you're only going to buy a property for a million dollars, there's no need to do a 1031 because there's no tax benefit from that transaction, right? In a 1031 exchange, you have to first replace basis before you begin to eat into the gain, right? So in my example, if I have a basis of two million in a property and I'm selling it for three. It's not until I exceed purchasing replacement property that that is north of 2 million that I begin to get any tax benefit. Yet a lot of people just think they're only replacing the gain. Another misconception we get from people is that they only have to roll the equity into the next property. And they ignore the fact that the debt has to be replaced as well. So those are the questions that we, you know, our team, we we try to collect information from our client so that we can identify where misperceptions might exist before they become problematic. Uh, So we collect that information from clients so we can identify, oh wow, you know, you're telling me and and kind of as we're, you know, intaking information that what you're intending to do isn't going to make any sense. So we can kind of clarify those issues. So I think, you know, the math side of the equation is something that people tend to not truly understand and oftentimes don't ask the right questions about. So again, you want your QI to be proactive in identifying those issues.
3: And that's a good point, Ricky. And, and I think not to get into the intricacies of it, but I think there's a lot of times where necessarily the, the investor doesn't realize that there's something called food that comes into play as well. And to make sure that you have a QI that obviously they, they understand it, but it's going to look out for your best interest there. Explain the importance of, of going through the settlement statement, realizing what's on there. That's That's a huge factor as well.
2: Yeah. And Jared, what questions should a 1031 investor be asking a sponsor, right? If they're, if they're considering rolling into more of a passive role or be a passive LP, I mean, what are the issues that they should bring up with the sponsor when they're vetting the sponsorship group as well as the underlying deal?
3: Experience is one for sure. Do your investment thesis match up? That's, that's another as well. Structure is very important. DST Delaware statutory trust versus Tennessee in common could have implications, and how you solve for the issues that arise with either one are also very important. I would say those are the biggest three. Timing is obviously very important for these, and so understanding the timing of what you know you're trying to solve for as the investor and what opportunity you're looking at and when it's going to close uh, is also very important.
2: So as we round out the conversation here, Ricky, I think oftentimes, even with sophisticated investors, they conflate 1031 in opportunity zones. And opportunity zones have been, you know, very in vogue the last 24 months. We don't do work in that space, but we know a lot of folks that do. Could you maybe help us delineate, you know, how they're maybe similar but different in how investors should think about pursuing
0: either one of them? Sure. You know I think the similarity really is there's a deferral element that exists with both, but that's really it. You know, the opportunity zone legislation is is materially different than than 1031. Under the opportunity zone, you're merely reinvesting some or all of your capital gain. So if, you know, to make an example if you have an asset you're selling for five million dollars, your basis is three million you have $2 million of built-in gain, you know, you're know you only taking some or all of that $2 million and investing it. So number one, that's a material difference. Number two, in the opportunities out of legislation, you're investing into a fund. And that is much different than in 1031 where you're buying, you know, be simple title to real estate. So you're investing in a fund. Secondly, your money has to stay tied up in that fund for 10 years, right? 1031 exchange, You could hold the property for two years, sell it, do another exchange, sell it, not do an exchange. A lot more flexibility on when you dispose of that investment. Here, you invested in a fund. You do not have liquidity. You are not in control of when you liquidate that position. You're going to be in that fund for 10 years. The benefits of Opportunity Zone are, number one, you will defer any tax that you owe until the end of 2026. So the positive is you're kicking the can down the road several years on having to pay any tax on the gain that you invest. The risk associated with that is you will be subject to whatever tax rates exist in 2026. So obviously your taxes could go up, they could go down. You don't know what the world will look like when it's time to kind of pay the government. The main material benefit of Opportunity Zone Is there is no tax on the appreciation. So if you invest $2 million into an opportunity zone fund and over the 10 year period, that $2 million grows to $3 million, that additional million dollars of new gain is fully tax free, which is very attractive for many people. So there are definitely pros and cons of the two programs. You know, I think taxpayers should look at what, what both, you know, what those programs offer 1031 versus opportunity zone. Because, you know, some are right for certain taxpayers, not right for others. There's ways to layer them. Some clients may choose to do a partial exchange. You know, again, go back to my example, 3 million basis, $5 million sales price. They might do a 1031 on $4 million of value. So they're deferring tax on a million in their 1031. And then they may take the other million of capital gain and they put that into an opportunity zone fund. So there's ways for these strategies to actually work well together but it goes back to planning. There's a lot of planning that has to be put in place in order for that to work. Yeah. I like the idea of
2: being able to work in tandem with the two of them. And this all goes back to kind of comments that Ricky you've made and Jared, you and I have experienced ourselves on the phone with individuals. If you're taking something away from this conversation, it's get a really good tax attorney, get a really good CPA, identify a QI that you believe in, that you feel comfortable with, that knows what they're doing and get them all on the phone or in a meeting as early as possible to talk through all this. Cause if you get your ducks in the row, it could be super powerful. But we've also seen it be a bit of a train wreck. And so, you know, that would be kind of my overall advertisement for this whole conversation. Well, listen, guys, I want to thank you both for joining us today. Ricky, if people who are listening are interested in joining or learning more about your firm,
0: of the services you provide, what's the best way for them to get engaged with you? Sure. So our company's website is thestrategicgroup.com. Lots of great information on opportunity zones, 1031 exchanges, tax credits, a lot of things we've spoken about today. So I would say that would be a great place to start.
2: Yeah, obviously we'll include Jared's content information as well, but you can reach out to us and we'd be happy to just have a preliminary conversation about what we've been seeing. In the 1031 space and and Jerry recently became an expert in 1033, which we could do probably a whole different podcast (laughs) about. I didn't even know what it was. So there's again, work with people who know what they're doing because there's there's a lot of technicalities and it can be a bit esoteric when you get deep into the tax code like that. But listen, I want to thank you both for coming on. It was a ton of fun, I think very informative. If you have questions, feel reach feel free to reach out. We're always happy to be a resource. If you enjoyed what you heard from the episode. Don't forget to leave us a review and make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And we're gonna do a quick lightning round. Ricky, what is the probability that ten thirty ones exist in the next 12, 24 months? Uh, I'd say greater than seventy five percent. Jared i say it's certainly very
3: high. It's a big part of our economy. And you know, as we see a little bit more struggle than what we've seen in the last couple of years, I think it's very important to keep those sort of incentives out there.
2: Okay. Thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.